Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martingano, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with not one, but two fantastic guests who will be talking about a favorite topic of mine, empathy, and how it differs across generations and cultures. Regular listeners will know the first guest. He's a psychology professor at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and a regular guest on the show. It's Dr. Jason Carroll. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. It's exciting to be a part of your first official hosting. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. How am I doing so far? Oh, beautifully, beautifully. I, I got that script at the beginning. Oh, I got that okay. Psych nerds are alive <laughs> and well, so we're good. So, Jason, you've been on Psych and Stuff before, but could you remind our audience about your in research interests and what you investigate here at UWGB? Yeah, so I have a lab here at GB that uh, specializes in the developmental side of morality and empathy. We test a lot of kids' preschool age into middle childhood, looking at how their brains support uh, their development of perspective-taking, self-control, and their knowledge of right and wrong and how those all build into understanding others. That is so cool. And you're continuing to engage students in that research? Yeah. I, I have this semester 10 students doing research with me. And wow. It's a, Fantastic. Yeah, it's a fun lab. Yeah. All right. Well, today is an extra special episode for me personally, as we have a guest who is not only a remarkable researcher, but also a dear friend of mine. Dr. Sarah Conrath is a social psychologist who leads the interdisciplinary program on empathy and altruism research at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And her groundbreaking studies on the dynamics of empathy and narcissism have captured academic interest and found resonance in the mainstream media, including NPR and the New York Times. Recently, she's been diving deeper into these topics, and we're fortunate enough to get an update on her latest findings today. So, Sarah, for folks who might not be familiar with your work, can you give us a quick rundown of your research? Sure. I look at uh, traits uh, related to pro-social behavior or empathy over time in young generations. I look at what are the implications uh, for the people who are more empathic themselves or who are giving um, for them. And then I also develop workshops and interventions to help to build and support empathic growth and development. Wow, that's quite a resume. Um, could you talk to us um, a little bit about how these different strands interconnect and build upon each other? Well, two, two of them for sure are really related. Um, so the story of the first paper I published as a new professor, which was uh, finding that empathy was declining from 1979 to 2009 in American college students. And when I saw those results, I was shocked and saddened, and it was it made me think differently. I used to think as a scientist we should kind of step back and just look at the data and just then wash our hands of it. But then I thought, oh, like, I want to do something. I want to contribute to some positive change. And so I started to pretty quickly after that um, apply for grants and start doing research on how to build empathy in young people because I saw this problem. Mm -hmm. And I tried to do it in a way that, you know, wasn't about judging them, but was about trying to understand where they're at. And they were really using, at this time, the beginning of smartphones and that kind of digital tech. So I designed a text message program to build empathy and also an app to build empathy. And so that was directly a response to um, the declining empathy. And those two strands are very intimately intertwined for me. Yeah, yeah. So you spotted a problem and then started to do research on ways to improve it. 
Uh, so that study that you mentioned on the decline of empathy among American youth, that's been really impactful. Uh, can you give us a few of the specific details about that study and, and how you collected that data? So we, uh, we, like I wasn't collecting the data in 1979, so just, just to put that out there, I was, I'm not going to say, but maybe I was or not born at that point. But anyway, but what we did is we used a, a meta-analysis method, which means we looked at a study of studies. We tried to find any study we could that measured empathy using this, the most common measure, the interpersonal reactivity index. And then we put them all together and examined whether, uh, amongst college students, we examined the trends in empathy. And we found that there were declines in perspective taking, which is kind of cognitive empathy, and also declines in um, empathic concern or compassion. So young people were saying that they were less, um, they were less likely to take the perspective of others and they were less concerned when others were in distress. All right. And that study, when it was published, um, NPR ran a, a headline at the time declaring the end of empathy. I was wondering what your reaction was to that interpretation of your results. Well, I'm an NPR nerd, so <laughs> I love NPR. But um, I think it was not just, like, it was several different media outlets that were were kind of sounding the alarm. But I, my reaction was always like, let's just look at this a little more closely and be careful because like to be, is this an audience of psych nerds so I can get nerdy? Absolutely. Great. Yeah. So to be nerdy, it's based on a one to five scale. Like one is not at all. I don't have empathy and five is very much. This is me. And we were still seeing on average scores above the three, the midpoint. So I wasn't like thinking it was the end of empathy. I was just seeing a concerning trend. And so it was kind of like, it was a little frustrating to see the interpretation of that because I think people often used it as a way to just kind of like reinforce their own stereotypes about young people being kind of like self-centered mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's not empathic so it was always a little frustrating to say in an, a low empathy way like you people are not empathetic you're like narcissistic but then no one was trying to understand what was going on and what the people's experiences might be. Yeah, so there does seem to be a tendency out there to always complain about the youth of today, and, and that, that seems to be a stereotype that's uh, been happening for, for generations, probably. Yes, for a long, long time, and there's so many. You can go back in history, and there's really funny examples throughout history, but there's one that I like from, like, 700 BCE, just, you know, to put it in perspective that old people have always enjoyed this, uh, talking badly about the youth. But um, I think the difference with the research that I did was that I wasn't just like, I wasn't just ha using a stereotype. I was looking at what young people were saying about themselves on self-report measures. Mm -hmm. So it's based on them, you know, their own reports. And I think that's a good way to do it because it shouldn't be coming from you know, adults who have their own bias. Yes. So even your data is showing that even the when young people are reporting their own empathy, you, you were seeing this decline. Right. But let's fast forward to today. So you have some new research that updates these findings. And so what's changed? Well, we, you and I, <laughs> have some new research on this topic. So I want to give you the credit that's Thank deserved. Thank you. Side note that I was uh, involved and do have a conflict of interest here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we've done an update. And uh, we've now looked at the data from 2008, 2009. And we were a bit stunned to see that there was a sudden change. So right at the time when I thought empathy was declining, like was declining and it looked like maybe if we did an update it would continue to decline but actually the data showed us the opposite 
So good news, like empathy has been rising since then. It's been amazing to see that, and I hope it continues. Um, but it's definitely surprising. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've mentioned you're surprised by this trend. So you were expecting it to keep declining. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't sure what mm. what would happen. Uh, it's, it was always possible that it could change, but the pattern was so clear in the previous data that mm -hmm. I didn't understand what would have happened in the world to make it suddenly change. So I, I thought it would probably continue, but it wasn't. Yeah, so, so what in the world do you think made it change? Do you have any ideas about what led to that shift? I have ideas, but with any kind of social change, you can't really know what's definitively causing it. So just put that in there, be, be a real psych nerd. <laughs> but because we see that pattern, that direct shift around the, the time of the Great Recession, and because other scholars have found similar uh, abrupt changes right around that time in other countries, I do think there was something about um, what was happening in the economy at that time that could have made people shift the way that they see the world and the way they interact with others. But that's just a guess, and it's it's really always hard to find evidence for these types of things, and I still think it's a bit of a puzzle. All right. Jason, I'd love to bring you in. I, I wonder, hearing these results, are you surprised? Yeah, I, I genuinely, this morning when uh, Sarah was giving her talk, it was this fascinating moment to go, well, we'd all assumed this decline, and then suddenly there's this uptick, and what is the mechanism of change? What's the underlying piece? And yeah, you're right. There's there's not a clear social aspect. The recession was a was a good thing that you were bringing up. Not a good thing. The recession was not a good thing. But <laughs> the recession was a, a widespread event that could yield it. I wonder if you think there's more. Because I think some of the themes that were coming up this morning were more intrinsic than extrinsic things mm -hmm. or micro-level changes. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, like, that got me thinking so much about kind of underlying internal mechanisms that might play a role as well. So are, are have there been fundamental shifts, you think, since the mid-2000s in some of the things that might lead to better empathy within? Well, there were actually this morning was pretty cool for me because I got to hear some um, personal experiences from students and they had some insights that I hadn't thought about. And one of the things that came up was that I am still thinking about how to measure and operationalize. But one of the things that came up was saying uh, that there's it seems to be there's a, like a wider sphere of social comparison now than before. We might have I mean, we always humans always we always compare ourselves to others. Whoever's around, we're going to do this. And, you know, even with TV, we with celebrities and so on. But now it's like more than that. Now it's like there's so many targets of comparison and you can't help but, um, well, one, be exposed to their suffering and, um, and, and just like, you know, like help and maybe think about what you can do and, but also maybe wonder about your own life at the same time. Yeah. I also, one thing that didn't come up this morning that I, it's just been making me think is, is it a language aspect? As in, do we suddenly have a better awareness of the words huh. to describe these things? Uh, like I'm thinking the old school superior warf style things on cognition and language, and I'm wondering, is it that the vernacular surrounding emotional awareness is so much more present since, I mean, 2008 is, you know, hope and Obama and all yes, these things. Exactly. And That's... I'm wondering if there are shifts that have happened within the U.S. at least towards... Uh, more of a familiarity. Even in the 20 teens, the the word empathy was used so constantly. It is being used a lot more. Yeah. If you look at Google searches of the word empathy or compassion, it's it's much more prevalent. It's much more part of our everyday conversations. But it has been one of my wonders. Um, if it's not economic, um, 
the, another big shift that has been happening in K to 12 has been the rise of social emotional learning programs and even directly empathy programs. And a lot of the states, there's um, there's ways to operationalize this, but a lot of states have now mandated. That was, I guess, before the <laughs> before <laughs> our recent times. But over the years of the years we're studying, they mandated social emotional learning within K to 12, and so. That's getting translated into, you know, kindergartners, like learning about like having words for emotions and being able to recognize not only others emotions, but also their own, which facilitates empathy. If you can understand yourself and how this person might be different in, in their response or experience. So I, I wonder about that. Um, it's very hard to demonstrate that, like with sign with numbers, because there was like the absence for many years of those programs. And then what you can see is like around the same time as there's a rise in empathy, it was around the same time as there was a rise in those kinds of programs in schools. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's a good point. And one of the things, uh, so we'll probably talk about parenting later, but I have a daughter that's in elementary school. And I'm surprised constantly when I'm seeing some of the, the, the teaching shifts that have happened. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have to do with, you would have termed it mindfulness a few years ago, but it's very being a, uber aware of both the physiological and kind of labels to the emotions that you're feeling at a given time. And I find that fascinating to see how that's going to shift kindergartners, first graders, second graders as they're progressing now through school and what the long-term effects are. It could, it could be what we're tracking is exactly that. So it's hard, you know, again, it's hard to know, but I think it, there's some interesting conversations in this and certainly give credit to those teachers who are realizing that school is more than just, you know, math and, and all the kind of objective subjects, but is also about how do you get along with others and um, do you care and how are you going to be a good citizen? Absolutely. I, lo I love this positive sort of additional benefit that education is, is perhaps bringing as, as a possibility um, for an explanation for this, this rise in empathy, maybe these, these new educational uh, teaching techniques that are being used. Uh, I did actually want to ju jump into parenting, Jason. Uh, so uh, both of you are, are parents, and uh, I was wondering whether you thought that maybe changes in parenting strategies uh, might, might explain these changes as well, rather than just in the educational system. Either one of you can jump in. <laughs> uh, I'm of two minds. So if you were talking about kids right now in school displaying things and that kindergarten to fifth grade, like the earlier development of um, empathic things, I think then mindfulness programs or parenting strategies through reading fiction, or actually there's an entire Mindful Me series, uh, different things that are uh, accessing emotion, talking about emotion, and having an environment that is open to those discussions, I could see that having the impact. The 2008 turn is where I'm, I'm struggling because yeah. that's, a, that's college students in 2008. Yeah. And so that would be early 1990s babies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would say the parenting movements in the 90s have, again, these are all correlational, not causal links. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, an important caveat. But it's hard to draw a line from the kind of parenting practices that would have been encouraged in the late 80s, early 90s to then this uptick in 2008. Right. Well, there was, I mean, I don't know the timing of this, but there has been kind of a change in, I don't know if it's quite like attachment parenting, but the kind of parenting that's a lot more hands-on and available, yeah. like you're gonna make sure you're there when the kid's like home from school and you've got these, 
you're you're aware of like what's going on in your kid's life and yeah. you know all their friends. I mean, it's it's a different. It feels like a different style of parenting, and it's really prevalent. And it can sometimes get to sort of a certain extreme where you your kid can't just go play in the park for an hour. Um, but but still, like I think it comes from a good place of like care and concern and involvement in children's lives. Yeah. So I don't know when exactly, like how do you track it and when exactly it started happening. But it's it's I think parents today are different than parents like. 20 and 30 years ago. I got to self-disclose at this point, I think, that I was born in 1990, and so I am literally the inflection oh. point oh. Uh, on the data trend. Wow. Where I, I turned 18 in 2008 at the, the lowest wow. point for empathy at 18-year-olds at that time. Um, and, and so I'm thinking back to my, my own parenting um, and trying to think through whether... <laughs> but, I, I mean, I think my parents did a great job and that, that I came out quite empathic. Um, but I think you're right. The, any shifts in sort of more modern parenting techniques probably came a little later in the 90s, although I grew up in the UK, so maybe things are different here. Maybe, and I think it, it's like, you know, a lot of, the, I think a lot, when you study this kind of thing, I think it's okay to say, I don't know, and yeah. like, I'm curious, and like, I want to look into that, and that's kind of where I'm at from this conversation, and For also sure. from this morning. It's, and I think that's, um, the only things that become clear, I would argue, are when there's absolutely bad aspects of it. So when things have gone completely wrong, I think there, it's easier to see than uh, mapping when things have gone right. And I'd say that's, so it's, uh, some of the pilot work we're doing has to do with kids that experienced early life maltreatment and things like that. And so you can ostensibly talk about traumatic life events that have happened and how that impacts long-term aspects. But it's harder though to talk about mm -hmm. the, the plethora of things that likely went right to get to that point. Right. And also to talk about, I mean, it's important to say that, especially when we're talking attachment parenting, then also the bigger movements, and that would have been in the 90s as well, towards teacher-child bonding happening in elementary school, where it's a secondary attachment of sorts can happen in your early elementary years, and that can form a resilient child on a socio-emotional level as well. So, yeah, you're right. It's, it's important here to just say there's there some cool questions that I don't know how we'd ask, mm -hmm. but they're out there. All right, so I'm, I'm going to sort of challenge you both now with a, a, a practical applied question. So you're, you're both empathy experts and you're both parents. So do you have any practical strategies for fostering empathy in children for any parents listening? <laughs> you can go ahead and take that one. <laughs> uh, why, that was so kind of you. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'll admit that I'm like just a person and I love studying empathy because it does also help me grow myself. And I see for me, empathy is a lifelong uh, growth that I want to work on, I care about. Uh, so I find in moments when I'm you know, frustrated or confused about my children, the best thing I could do is stop and pause for a minute and just kind of regroup and, and center myself. So I think for me, self-awareness or what you called mindfulness um, is really, really helpful for me to be able to show empathy and be the kind of parent I want to be. It's, I, I think you made such a powerful point this morning that resonates directly to parenting, which is that self-compassion has to be at the, at the heart and start of aspects of uh, empathizing with others. And I, I found that to be something I was thinking through of all the instances in parenting where you have to do that, but you do have to be aware of your own state, your own emotional aspect, uh, and that awareness, I, there is no one path, obviously. I, mm -hmm. I think 
the history of studies of developmental, of socialization, of empathy across development suggests there are multiple pathways to get towards a comparable output, but they are going to be relevant to the, I think of like Jay Belsky's work on um, interactional synchrony. It's all about the physiological and, and other needs of the child and the match that that has to how the parent is then shifting, that bi-directional feedback effect of constantly shifting. So there's no strategy, it's more just being there and being attentive um, or present to some extent. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I'm not a parent myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that these strategies would be, would be effective. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, and and I, I'm really just so interested in these generational shifts and empathy that we're seeing in the good news story that it brings that, that things are, appear to be at least, improving uh, in recent generations. But I'm also curious as to how this picture might look different if we factor in cultural influences. So both of you have done some really amazing research on this front. Uh, Sar, your work has looked at empathy across a whopping 63 countries. And Jason, you've explored the development of empathy in children from different cultural backgrounds, including comparing US and Japanese ch children. And you recently actually just came back from a research trip to Japan. So I'd love to hear your ideas. Um, to kick things off, do you want to share your perspective on how empathy is shaped by culture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I don't know the answer, but uh, I have some ideas of how it, how it goes. We study this in very different ways. So um, the, mine is more experimental with a laptop in every single place. So it's much smaller sample sizes and much smaller age ranges and groupings of what's going on. So in some of the larger studies, we were looking at five to 12 year olds, and that was across uh, with empathy measures, that would have been about seven countries. If you're going more broadly into morality, then about 15 countries. Um, and that was trying to look at what other things are related to the development of these. So we, we know that from about age five to about age 12, we increase in our understanding of taking other people's emotional perspectives in general, at least in Western cultures, um, that we tend to be able to um, feel differently for the plight of another individual. So uh, we feel concern or sympathy for them increasingly across that age as well. We also know that corresponds to huge shifts happening in the brain and in a lot of areas that are relevant to self-control. Uh, and so I think that's a key piece to talk about as, um, as a co-occurring or orthogonal development. So a piece that I would argue is really important to this picture is that um, to have the self-awareness aspect, we have to control ourselves. We have to stop ourselves from our automatic uh, reactions we would have and shift. And that's what we were trying to study a lot in cross-cultural is the role in these cross-cultural studies was how does it differ by culture? And it fell roughly along the lines that you would think of for Eastern, Western kind of cultures, where in slightly more Eastern or um, slightly more tight-knit cultures is, is the more appropriate term in this case, um, you had a slightly earlier cognitive perspective understanding of other cultures. Um, but you didn't have the emotional perspective that was coming in quite as fast. They weren't uh, significant long-term age range effects, but and they evened out by the end of the age range, but there was a slight early shift that it seemed to be a, a delay in the development around five. Um, in the U.S., though, it was really related to the development of general theory of mind, so general understanding of that others have beliefs, desires, perspectives, and ideas different than our own. The better you could get at that, plus the better you were at self-control, 
the more related to the development of empathy that was, the more uh, related to other pro-social behaviors. So in this case, it was sharing, uh, your willingness to share stickers or candies with other kids. So it roughly fell along an east-west divide, but it wasn't that clear because we had several countries that were more in the middle if you were taking um, kind of an old-school Hofstede index. You would have countries that didn't fall into individualist or collectivist necessarily fell more middle of the road, and they really didn't differ that much from each other. So it wasn't the clearest cross-cultural finding, which is where I've struggled <laughs> in, a, in a clear cultural. In the smaller studies we've done of the U.S. versus Japan, which is uh, where we've taken undergrads over to Japan with us, and we're looking at how parent socialization techniques shift uh, preschool brain responses to good and bad actions, but also to pain befallen others, uh, cartoon characters. Um, there we are finding pretty substantial differences in more automatic brain processing um, by age four-ish, I would say. And that seems to suggest that a more automatic processing of pain befalling others is starting to happen, at least in Japan, than the U.S. Uh, it doesn't seem long-term, though. Hmm. It's interesting because we, we don't have the intensive methods where we're in the lab, where we're just looking at surveys kind of at a distance, really just um, like, you know, the unit of analysis is the country. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. But we looked at the Hofstede type scores and, and we find that the countries that tend to score higher on collectivism are the countries that are scoring higher, that have participants scoring higher on empathy. So we're finding that at that level, at an aggregate level, there is a relationship. There is a serious relationship. Okay. Because that's, we had hints towards it, but it wasn't quite as clear. That's what I was saying, the more um, sorry, interdependent or. Right. Yeah, yes, exactly. Type, yeah, collective and we also find, I mean, this is correlational, but like the countries that have more higher rates of volunteering are also showing higher empathy, whether it's empathy is begetting volunteering or volunteering is begetting empathy, but there's, they go together. Interesting. The. How does it have to do with things like wealth? Because that's a, a piece that we couldn't ever control for in the smaller lab studies because we're using convenient samples and small sample sizes. But does that matter? It might, but if so, I have to reread my paper. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> it's been a, a few years since yeah. we published that. But I do, I do think we, um, we added that to our analysis. I don't think we controlled for it. I think we just wanted to see how that was correlated with empathy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I want to bring this back and, and connect it with what we were talking about earlier about parenting, because I'm wondering to, to what extent cultural differences in parenting might explain these. And, and Jason, I think you um, looked at how parents discuss moral actions with children across cultures. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, so this is actually, um, it's one of the pieces of research where it's cool, as you two have, where you find someone that is really intrigued by something similar but slightly different from what you do. And so uh, Dr. Sawasanzaki, who's on uh, faculty here as well, well, has uh, for a long time looked at cultural narratives that parents give towards teaching new things. So hers was a lot on attention, how they uh, focused attention of their kids to different things happening on the screen, to the foreground versus the background, which are some older cultural attention uh, differences that have been well shown. And when I got here and was studying morality, we just sat down and started thinking through cool questions. And what we were trying to figure out was, first, do parents speak about morality in different ways? And they do. So in both the US and Japan, when they're seeing cartoons that are doing good and bad actions, uh, they, the primary 
content of a parent's spoken word about this or narrative about it has to do with the actions that are happening. So uh, he just pushed him. Uh, that square just helped that triangle, etc. So it's action-based content to the language. But then the second piece was where things really shifted. So in the United States, the secondary language that was always used was judgment language. So we would uh, bring forward things like, um, that was a bad thing because this happened. That was a good thing because. And so it was immediately teaching the judgment itself to the child. Whereas in Japan, the constant phrase was, how do you think that square feels? So the victim of some kind of transgression that happened or the benefactor tended to be the thing that was pointed to secondary. So action was absolutely the primary thing across both countries, similarity there. But that second piece made us go, okay, there's definitely a shift in how parents describe these mm -hmm. same scenarios. What does it do to the kid's moral understanding? Do they think it's good or bad? The actual judgments of good and bad are super similar. And so that's one of those interesting yeah. notes of the behavioral outcome looks the same. The brains look very different. And so it's this cool moment where you go, okay, when a parent is talking a lot more about these kind of emotion-inducing aspects, so talking about the plight of the victim or how would that victim feel or how would you feel if that had happened to you, which is another kind of plea in that way, it ends up shifting um, partially the early aspects, but a lot of, when you're talking about EEG, a lot of times you're talking about the speed with which or the uh, how automatic versus controlled a process is. And this one shifted a little bit of the early automatic and a lot of the much later things where kids were purposely going back to think about the content. And that's where we got this big shift based off of the parenting aspect, not just culture, but um, how often they were talking about the plight of the victim. That is so that's cool. That's really neat. It's a cool finding for sure. It just, it's, it feels like more empathy inducing to just, you know, focus on training or, or orienting your child toward what's going on with the other person. It's, it's fascinating though, because if you look, especially in Western culture at the way that we've taught morality for so long, it is a don't do this or do do that. It's proscriptive or, or prescriptive kinds of moral rule sets that you mm -hmm. follow with a judgment that's built in. Mm -hmm. And that's, it, it opened my eyes to see other cultures to go, oh, that's not the automatic piece. There's a different set going on here. And yeah, it is a, it's a fascinating piece that I'm not sure what to take from it yet. I'm not sure, but it makes me, you know, the last time in this conversation we talked about judgment, yeah. we were talking about how like older, like more adults tend mm -hmm. to look down on the youth and kind of judge them and say they're low empathy or selfish. And it just makes me wonder if given the same data in Japan, would they say like what's happening in their lives or like what what's going on? I mean, I don't know if they would, if, if this is even that, I say that tendency that we've had all for human history, but maybe it's not, maybe that's Western history. Maybe that's a Western yeah. based thing. Oh, fascinating. No, I see what you're saying here because it is one, if the tendency was what is the person feeling, et cetera, to automatically take that perspective or to encourage taking that perspective more readily, that it would shift maybe at the same time. I don't know if this is just every generation talks about the next generation. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just never even asked the question of like, if if this, I thought that, I thought it was a universal that just people just like look at the youth and are worried about whether they're selfish and kind of judge them. But I actually think like 
it, it's worth actually like looking into other histories and seeing sort of how other people respond to um, their young people. And that would be neat, actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that, that research, Jason. I, I think it's really cool that there's... That you found the same moral judgments at the end, but the the mechanism to get there differs. Mm-hmm. There are like multiple different ways to success. It's making me think um, about uh, some of the work uh, on increasing empathy and different strategies to increase empathy. That there isn't just one way necessarily to do this. Uh, Sara, I know you work on on various different strategies. Maybe you could mention a couple uh, to give us an idea of the the uh, selection that might be available. Well, the one that's been studied the most has been actually one you, Jason, already talked about, which is um, just imagining what other people are going through, right? So that's called just a perspective-taking induction. And it takes, like, it's free. It takes 10 seconds. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be in the same room with anyone. It's amazing that we find huge effects that when people are just for a moment stopping to imagine others' perspectives, that they feel more compassion, then they're also more likely to want to help. So that's, like, the big one. But, you know, in reality, like most of us aren't walking around going like, oh, I better do this. I'm trying to grow my empathy. I mean, most of us are living our lives and there's there are many fun ways <laughs> as well that you can integrate into your regular hobbies. Um, so like reading, I think you mentioned reading, reading fiction, um, learning about other people's experiences and cultures. I think I think it's not just reading. I think media, pro-social media, you know, feel good stories, like examples of people doing good and, and just inspirational type of things could help as well. Yeah. And being around babies and, and, <laughs> and young animals, like cute cute and vulnerable um, beings who can't express themselves directly, so you have to learn how to read them. Ah, yeah. So sort of challenging your empathy muscle to work to try and figure out what a cute baby's thinking. Yeah, but like yeah. it for me at least, I'm like, I want to do that. I like, like <laughs> it's, it's reinforcing to see cute animals or babies or whatever um, it, to just figure out how to, you know, delight them, right? And so that to me, it's, it doesn't have to feel like a chore or like this moral, like, you know, vegetable, <laughs> but it can just be like, there's so many strategies. And um, for those of us who want to try and grow in our empathy, like there's many different, it's a variety on your plate. You can just choose the ones that, you know, you enjoy the most. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so I, I, I'm going to wrap up here. I have just one last question uh, that I, I want to yeah, challenge you both to answer, which is uh, where do you see the field of empathy research heading in the next decade? Hmm. I have to say I'm fascinated by the work that both of you do because I think it integrates technology, and I think it's hard to it's hard to see a world where we're not talking about social interaction through technology and how that's going to influence our social cognitive abilities. So I kind of see that as it's got to be one of the, the frontiers of where this goes. I love that you've just given me a job for the next Oh, yes. Yeah, so, no, I, I, I just, appreciate that. I, I think it's hard to not see that as, <laughs> as a step. From a developmental side, I think it's important to see it at the, at the early end and how it's starting to influence as you're developing other skills that are really necessary, what is the influence of a lot of our communication being through, uh, I'm grabbing my phone right now, but as, <laughs> as I uh, reach towards my phone, through a phone, through an iPad, through all of these kinds of alternative ways, what does that impact for our social cognition? Yeah, I, I would echo that. I think there, there are emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, that uh, I think we're sometimes we have a reflex to have moral panic when we see new things come out. And maybe there's 
there's usually reasons like, you know, pluses and minuses with each technology. But I, when I think of new technologies, I just think of them as tools. And so like, how can we just like figure out really strategically early on how to use these tools in positive ways? But I also see an increasing societal acceptance and understanding that empathy is a fundamental human uh, trait and skill and that it benefits uh, ourselves and others. And it's helpful in the workplace. And there's there seems to be more of an understanding of this um, within, you know, education and within the corporations and so on. So hopefully, like, we can move toward kind of like, what is smart empathy or sustainable empathy? How do we do this in a way that is, like, really mutually beneficial um, so we can continue to do it for our, our, the you know, whole lifespan? Great. I'm, I'm loving the positive energy you're both bringing to the room right now. Uh, and I, I just want to give a huge thank you both to you, Sarah and Jason, for being here today and for sharing your incredible insights. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about, and I'm so grateful for the time you took to be on Psych and Stuff. Really appreciate it. Before you both go, uh, maybe you could just give a little idea of where our listeners can keep up to date with your research. Uh, most of my research uh, can be found either on the UWGB Psych websites or on Google Scholar ResearchGate. So look it up and we've got cool stuff there, but all my lab stuff is definitely through the UWGB website. For me, Google Scholar is your fastest way and then when I ever get to it, I update my website, which is <laughs> ipairlab.org, uh, I-P-E-A-R lab.org, but it takes a, a little while for me to post that stuff, so Google Scholar is your best bet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you heard it here first. So Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Valisi. Special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Jason Carroll and Dr. Sarah Conrath. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcasts, to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Alison Jane Martin-Gano. Keep being amazing. Mm-hmm.